2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training and in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead? And in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of the evangelists. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. This is God's word. Let's join together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you and we praise you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the privilege that it is to have your word in a language that we can understand. And so we pray now that your spirit would teach us and guide us through that word that we might know you and love you and serve you better. And we pray this in the strong and precious name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, 500 years ago, a young uh, German monk named Martinus Luder uh, was concerned about the theological direction of the church. Uh, he was concerned about its poor teaching. He was concerned that people were being sold bits of paper by the church, uh, bits of paper called indulgences, that would buy time out of purgatory for your relatives. And that money was being used to uh, pay for the, the building of St Peter's Church in Rome. And this selling of indulgences was really getting to Luther and some others as well. Uh, there was even a bit of a, a ditty that they had that went with the selling of the indulgences. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. There's some early marketing, if you like, to take it that way. And so Luther wrote 95 theses, 95 points for debates. And so in his town of Wittenberg on the 31st of October, he did what you did in those days when you wanted to debate something. You wrote it down and you went to the castle church and you posted it on the door of the castle church. So Luther did that. He made the 12-minute journey uh, from his home. He walked along uh, Kolingestasa and went to the castle church nailed the theses up and then probably went home and thought, well, let's see what happens next. He didn't know it, but that day he set off an explosion. And we, 500 years later, we still feel the effects of that explosion. What that one simple act of nailing those 95 theses to the door was like a spark that just set off the whole Reformation movement. It changed the course of history, not just in Germany, but in the whole world, just that one simple act. How did it happen? At the very heart of what Luther wanted was to debate the Bible. He wanted to call the church back to the Bible. 
because the church had strayed away into its own traditions and practices and had forgotten that at the very heart of what it was to follow Jesus is, is to actually follow his word and do what his word says. See, this is also a time of the Renaissance when there's, a, this, this, uh, there's great interest going on in, in learning and in getting back to what was really written. And so there was this great cry at the time, back to the source. And so Luther and others are saying, back to the Bible. Let's take the church back to the Bible. Now, he changed his name from Luder to Luther. Why? Because the word Luther, it sounds like the Greek word for freedom. As a monk, he was very religious, did all sorts of things, but he had no assurance. And as he read Romans, he came to understand that it was not Martin Luther that was charged with the work of saving him from hell, but Jesus Christ. He was converted. And so he changed his name uh, to Luther. He found forgiveness and freedom in Christ. The Bible is central to who we are as followers of Christ. We don't take this book and worship it. We worship the God who wrote it. Uh, I've heard some people call this sometimes the Protestant Pope. That is so wrong. These are God's words. And so as we read these words, as we obey them, we're actually honouring the one who's given us this, this magnificent book. And so this morning, I want us to think about what this means as you think about the doctrine of sola scriptura, scripture alone. Yes, tradition and history, they're important. They're important. But in the end, the final say belongs to the word of God and to the God who wrote that word. You see, down through the centuries, there have been three places where Christians have looked for uh, knowledge, uh, a primary knowledge of God. First of all, reason, our own logic. And what's happened sometimes is that we've thought things through from a human perspective, and that's actually led us sometimes into heresy, such as denying that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, please do not hear me saying that we're anti-intellectual. We need to use our brains. We need to use our brains when we read the Bible. But when we rely just on human reason alone, that leads us away from Jesus quite often. The second place we sometimes get our, um, our knowledge from is, is tradition. Past practices of Christians in earlier centuries. Tradition can be very good if it's used well. We don't reinvent Christianity every Sunday morning when we gather. No, no. We look to what others have taught us and learned in the past. But tradition itself is not sufficient to know the way to God. And so that brings us to our third source of knowledge, the Bible. Because, you see, unlike, unlike reason and tradition, the Bible is outside of ourselves. It's alien to us. It comes to us from God. So when we listen to the Bible, we're listening to God. We're listening to someone who is outside of us, someone that's not caught up in the, in, in the sinful motivations that we are so often caught up in. And so the Bible speaks to us in a way that no other document can. Why? Because it's God speaking to us. When the Bible is read, God speaks. You imagine if we were to advertise today that tonight at the evening service, I'm sorry, John, you can't preach tonight, tonight at the evening service, God was going to speak. Okay, tonight at 6.25 you'd have television cameras and a few politicians, they want a photo opportunity, uh, and so on. You'd have bloggers and writers, you know, what's God going to say? And then someone gets up, they read the Bible. That's God speaking. 
Every time the Bible is read, God speaks. You see, you've got this image in Exodus 19. There is Israel gathered around the mountain at Mount Sinai. And what's God doing? He's addressing the congregation of Israel. And every time we have the Bible read to us, God is addressing us as a congregation. And we're assembled and we're listening. We're straining to listen because God is speaking. What is he going to say to us that day as we listen to his word? Our God speaks. He's not playing hide and seek. He has not remained silent. So please, open your Bibles with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And uh, we're going to look at these verses briefly this morning. And notice the crucial opening words. All scripture is God-breathed. The words of the Bible are the God-breathed-out words of the Bible. Sometimes some translations say that it's inspired. Well, that's actually... Inspired in a sense of breath going out, yes. That can be a bit misleading as a translation. God breathed out. These words come from God himself. And so they're unique, they're powerful. How did God make the world? He spoke. Let there be light, and there was light. Let there be food, and there was food, and so on. It's God's powerful word that actually brings things into being. You see, friends, this is the word of God. This is no ordinary book. This is the word of God. And he speaks. He continues to speak. And if you look at creation, you can see that there is a God. But how do we know what he is like? How do we know how he wants us to respond to him? Well, it's there in the the Bible. For this is where he speaks specifically to us. Uh, Creation is general revelation. This is special revelation. God speaking to us through his word. And so we have an obligation to listen to that word. But notice why God gave it to us in verse 16. It's for teaching, rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. When I was a a young boy in primary school, uh, the lady across the road uh, owned a 16-volume set of what was called Encyclopedia Britannica. Now, this is like Wikipedia put in books, okay? And it was a pretty comprehensive sort of thing. So when I had a school assignment, I'd go across the road to this lady and I'd look up the stuff I needed for the school assignment, I'd close it and put it back on and maybe come back in four months' time and use it again. As far as I know, I was the only person who used her Encyclopedia Britannica. Uh, It just sat there on the shelf gathering dust, Now, I suspect that sometimes that's how some Christians treat the Bible. It's something you dip into now and then when you need to. But no, it's meant to be our our meat. It's meant to be our life. We're meant to feed on this. It was once said of John Bunyan, the man who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, that if he were to cut him, he would bleed the Bible. He knew the Bible so well that, you know, in an imaginative way that you were to cut him, not blood would flow out, but the Bible itself. For you see, this word constantly teaches us and rebukes us and encourages us and comforts us and and spurs us on. And it thoroughly equips us for every good work. It's essential. And so we must cling to this book. We must cling to it because it's essential for us as followers of Jesus Christ today. You know, there are people today who, in the wider church who say the Bible is not sufficient. 
and they say, uh, well, look at the issue of homosexuality, for example. Uh, the writers of the Bible, they weren't very sophisticated. They, they just reflected their time. They didn't know what we know today about homosexuality. It, it was simply just a product of its own time. And my response to an argument like that is rubbish. Absolute rubbish. When people are saying that sort of thing, they're really saying that the, that the Bible is not very sophisticated. They're saying that God didn't know enough about homosexuality when the Bible was written so that it only addresses some situations and some cultures. It's saying God's limited. But actually the Bible actually, when you look at it and study it, actually knows a lot more about that subject than you might imagine. But people are already saying, when they say that, God's short-sighted, that he couldn't see into the future that he couldn't see our needs in the 21st century, that he couldn't have a Bible written that was sufficient for every culture and every time. Because the Bible is sufficient for every culture and every time. And the, the more I study it, the more I look at other cultures that I, I actually engage with when I fly to different places in the world, I see how relevant the Bible is and just how timeless it is. It's, it, it's incredibly powerful. What does verse 17 say here? Please pay close attention to what it says. It says that the Bible thoroughly equips us for some good works. No, it says for every good work. Not some, but every. When we want to know who God is, when we want to know who we are, when we want to know how we should live, we see what God says in the Bible. We, we, we turn to that because it's totally sufficient. We can't do without it. Now, notice, please, here, secondly, the seriousness of Scripture here. What do we do with the Bible? Look at verse, verse, chapter 4 and verse 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and with careful instruction. So in his mind, Paul takes Timothy and he stands Timothy before the risen Christ. And he says, in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, I give you this commission. Preach the word. Declare the word of God. And I don't care if it's convenient or it's inconvenient. Declare the word of God. You don't have a choice. This is sobering. This is serious. And we sometimes forget that. Sometimes... We get so caught up in eating and drinking and enjoying life and etc, etc, that we actually forget that what we do with the word of God is serious business. These are the words of eternal life. These are the words that so many Australians desperately need to hear. This is the life-giving message. And why is it so serious? Look at verse 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead. Judgment is coming, whether we like it or not. The day is coming where God will blow the full-time whistle on this world and then judgment will begin. And there's no escaping that sobering fact, the judgment of God. Uh, that, that idea today seems like such an outdated thing to so many people in our society. How, how medieval, how, how backward to think about God's judgment. <coughs> but that doesn't alter the fact that it's coming. Sometimes we just put it at the back of our mind. Others just try to forget about it altogether. 
But God has put eternity in our hearts and the Bible tells us that the day of judgment is coming and we can't ignore that. Have we forgotten that it's coming? You know, in, in past generations, what they would do is they'd put the cemetery outside the church building. And that meant that during the service, when you got bored with the sermon, you could look out the window, you could see the cemetery, and you could think to yourself, one day I'll be there. One day judgment is coming for me. And how did you know that? It was because the Bible tells you that judgment is coming. We need to remember that it's coming. And we must use the urgency of that to spur us on as we tell people about Jesus. A few years ago, I was hosting a forum in New South Wales for some leaders in our Presbyterian church there. And we were thinking about barriers to growth in the church. And as we went around the room, people were sharing different ideas. And one person said this. The barrier that I see is this. We don't believe in hell. We don't believe in hell. And I thought... He's right. And we believe it with our heads. But do we believe it with our hearts? Does it spur us on to tell people about Jesus? Because without Jesus, they're going to hell. And how do we know all that? It's because what the Bible tells us. There's an urgency in the words of the Bible. We're to take it seriously. It's, it's real and, and it's sobering. We don't know it because the church tells us this. We know it because scripture tells us this. The Bible alone tells us what we need to know with pinpoint accuracy. You know, one of the worst things that, that can ever happen to a community is a famine. It's a horrible thing to have people with such little food that their bellies start to expand and, and so on. But in Amos, uh, the, 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 the prophet Amos tells us about a famine. He says this, The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine throughout the land, not a famine of food or a thirst of water, but a famine of hearing the words of God. The days were coming, says Amos, when Israel, you will no longer hear the word of God. Now, you might think to yourself, surely that can never happen to us. We're the Presbyterian church. Okay, come with me in your mind's eye for a moment. Let's go back 41 years. Let's go to a typical Presbyterian church in, say, Victoria or even New South Wales, where I came from. Okay? It's Sunday morning, and the Bible reading that day is the feeding of the 5,000. And uh, the preacher gets up, and he explains that, really, there was no miracle that day. It was just the little boy got his lunch out, and others had got their lunch out after they followed his example, and they all shared their lunch, and that's how 5,000 people got to be fed that day. And you might think, boy, that's a pretty lame way to explain the Bible, but that's... That's a common way, it was a common way 41 years ago in our church for explaining what happened in miracles. Jesus didn't walk on water, literally, there was a sandbar. That's what happened and the disciples couldn't see the sandbar. You, get that, you used to get that sort of stuff. I was sitting next to a friend yesterday at church uh, breakfast and he said the church that he grew up in, the minister was very interested in cricket. What did they get in their sermons? Cricket. Not the Bible. And you might think I'm making some of this up. I kid you not, and I wish I was making it up. You would not believe some of the things that happen uh, sometimes. Uh, I, was, I became a Christian at 17, and I used to go to the Church Missionary Society summer school conference once a year, and that's where I'd get the, the bulk of my Bible teaching for the year. I wasn't getting it from my local church. 
So please do not take the fact that the word of God is open here Sunday by Sunday for granted. We, we have an extraordinary privilege in the churches in Australia. God is very, very gracious to us. They were days when the Presbyterian church lost its confidence in the Bible. But by God's grace, we've come back to the Bible. But don't ever think it can't happen to us. The days will come when those, those sort of issues will come back to our door because surely there were generations in the past that said, surely we won't walk away from the Bible. And they did. And they did. Don't let your guard down. And finally, let's think about the necessity of Scripture. Uh, what does the Bible do? Each morning I get up and I look in the mirror, I comb my hair, and what do I see? I see a young man who's 21 years old with nice brown hair, with no blotches on his face. And, no, I see myself as I really are, I am. What does the Bible do? It holds a mirror up to us. It tells us what we really like. It tells us the solution to what ails us. It tells us that we need what Jesus Christ has done. Because when you read the Bible, it tells us we're guilty. Guilty of sinning against the living God. The worst crime ever. Guilty is charged, but it also tells us the best news ever. That Jesus Christ was sent to rescue us from our sin. We need the Bible to tell us the truth. Because what will happen if we don't have the Bible? Please look at verse 3 in chapter 4. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. We often try to filter the Bible so that we only hear what we want to hear. But if we take our time to read it and to read all of it, not just some of it, it exposes us, it shows us our need, and it teaches us. And the Spirit calls us back to repent of our sin. Did you notice in verse 3 also the, that little word great there? Instead, of, instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers. Not just one or two, but a great number. And that can have a profound effect on a denomination and even entire countries. And so we need to be very careful that we don't become the, the sort of people that this verse talks about. I've made a bit of a lifelong study of heresy and how it gets you into a denomination. It's a sad and fascinating process. It's a bit like a car crash, you know, where suddenly everything just slows down and you can see it happening. What happens? Heresy often enters a church by attacking the Bible's basic teaching, who Jesus is, what he did, his resurrection. Uh, the authority of the Bible, uh, and so on. And who's behind all of this? Satan. Satan is as predictable as a politician at election time with a bunch of babies. You know, he, he, just, he can see what he's going to do, and so on. And so we need to be very careful that we, we take care of the Bible. Because heresy never starts overnight. It usually starts in our theological colleges. Because what happens is somebody is appointed as a lecturer, and that lecturer might change his views over time. And so that means that, uh, that he then teaches what are um, uh, heretical doctrines to his students. They go out as ministers. They teach those doctrines to the people in the pew. And then some of the people in the pew offer to serve as ministers. And so they go to the college and the process just goes on and on until God in his grace breaks that chain. And the church goes back to the Bible. 
you can see it's a cyclical process. And that means that sometimes the people, the most important people in a denomination at times, can be the people who nominate, who choose lecturers to be at Bible colleges. That's why we need to pray for our Bible college. Very, very important. Because what is taught there will actually make its way down to the pew for generations to come. But how, did, how does this happen in the first place? Look back at verse, um, verse 3 again. It, it tells us that they'll want to gather around a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. We choose the people that say the things that we want. You see, if, if a, a teacher says, for example, Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, even a Sunday school child can spot that heresy. But this is what they usually say, something like this. Well, you know, talk of the bodily resurrection isn't quite the way I describe it happened on that first Easter morning. The, the people who wrote the Bible, they had a very simple view of the world. On that first Easter morning, the disciples thought about Jesus a lot and they had an experience that was mystical and when they came to write the Bible, they imagined somehow he had risen from the dead. And that's just a fancy way of saying there was no resurrection. I heard one fellow some years ago say, I'm inclined to the view that the bones of Jesus lie rotting somewhere in Palestine. Another way of saying, no resurrection. No resurrection. One of the things about false teachers is they're very nice people. Very engaging people. Brilliant speakers. And that's how they win people over. That's how they win people over. So friends, all of this points to the necessity of the Bible. We need to use it as a standard for everything. Because what happens if we don't use the Bible as our measure? What happens if we don't believe what it teaches? Look at verse 4. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Where does false teaching come from? It comes because Christians don't want to listen to the Bible. Take the issue of same-sex marriage, for example. I know a number of Christians who are unsure about what the Bible says about homosexuality. Why? Because they've got friends who are homosexuals. Uh, and they struggle to reconcile what the Bible says with their friend and their friendship with that, that person. And they wonder, how can I reconcile the two? And the result? They don't know how to vote in this current debate. But you can see what's happening there. They're reading their friendship, they're reading their Bible through the friendship they've got with their friend instead of reading their friendship through the lens of the Bible. The Bible tells us what is real in this world. The Bible tells us not just about homosexuality, but adultery and other, all sorts of other sexual things as well. We need to read things through the lens of the Bible because God has spoken there. God has spoken there. I know a number of ministers in other denominations, they're shocked that people in the under 35-year-old age category in the church are really struggling to know how to vote. They, they know everything about the Bible, but on this one issue, wavering is going on because of that. And it's quite distressing. It's quite distressing. Martin Luther, when uh, he, he grappled with the issue of justification by faith alone, that was the big issue in his day. What are we struggling with as a worldwide church in our day? Sexuality. That's a big issue at the moment, across the world. And it's really interesting. In the non-Western world, a lot of the churches are looking at the Western churches and, their, and the Western church's approval of homosexuality, and they're saying, what are you doing? 
What are you doing? You're rejecting the word of God. You sent missionaries to bring the word of God to us and now you are the ones that need evangelizing. You are the ones that need to be called back to the Bible because you are being disobedient. And who's it, who's it, who's it working all of this? Satan. Satan is the one who's causing us to doubt the word of God. It's predictable. It's obvious. So will we accept the Bible as the sole rule of faith and authority? So what is Timothy to do? Look at verse 5. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. And those two little words there at the start, but you... But you, Timothy, they're very important. Because Timothy is not to let the surrounding culture shape what he believes and teaches. He's to listen to the word of God. He's to listen to that with all of our being. The Old Testament and the New Testament both come from God. You see, we, we live in an age where we've got unparalleled access to the Bible. You know, ten different uh, English translations at least. And there's Bible apps and this. And what are we doing? We're actually reading the Bible less not reading the Bible more. I'm sure many of you will know that the, the, the time of the Reformation in England, the Bible was actually a banned book. It was written in Latin. People who spoke English weren't allowed to have access to it because they might misunderstand it. But eventually God worked through people like Wycliffe and Tyndale and one of um, uh, Tyndale's... Um, Tyndale's uh, Dying words, Lord, open the King of England's eye and he, your eyes. And a year later, the King of England authorised the translation of the Bible into English. And what happened then? A Bible was placed in every parish church in England and they chained it so no one could steal it. Imagine that, stealing Bibles. They chained it up. And in some churches, there were, there were queues out the door to come and hear the Bible read. Imagine that, you know, like security guard. Next, you know, you 20 can go in and hear the Bible. Imagine that, people queuing out the door on a Sunday morning here to hear the Bible read. But at the same time, this is the most dangerous book in the world. That's why it's been banned in so many countries. That's why it has to be smuggled in to so many countries. Every time I fly back into Australia, there's an Australian immigration form and one of the questions is, are you bringing anything dangerous into the country? And I'm always tempted to tick yes. <laughs> and can you imagine the reaction at customs? A Bible? A Bible? Yep. It's the most dangerous book in, in the world. It's the most dangerous book in the world. Let me close with this. A few months ago, my wife and I were actually in Wittenberg. Uh, where Martin Luther was. We did a bit of our own private uh, Reformation trip. And we were in uh, the square in Wittenberg, and there is a statue of Martin Luther. One of the lesser-known reformers, Philip Melanchthon. Uh, they say Martin Luther was the, the big ideas man who caused the damage sometimes. He's a bit you know, boisterous. Uh, Melanchthon was the fellow who was the, the detail guy who helped to put some of Luther's plans into practice. And years later, Luther was looking back at the Reformation and, and what the Bible did, and this is what he wrote. Take me, for example. I opposed indulgences and all papists, but never by force. I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then, while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with Philip, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. 
I left it to the word. And I love that. The word did it all. God speaks and he acts through his word. So friends, don't let it sit in your head. Read the word. Love the word. Obey the God who wrote the word. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this precious gift. Forgive us, we ask, for the times when we have taken it for granted or ignored it. For Father, many of us have many Bibles on our shelves at home. Give us a deep and abiding passion for you. And we pray, Lord God, that as you read your word, we might learn more about you. For this is your word. Father, we thank you for this. Help us to be responsible with it so we will honour you. Protect us, we ask, from heresy. Help us to so love your word that we love you and do what you say. For we pray this in the strong and precious name of Jesus. Amen.